You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning everybody, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, your Saturday 3CR breakfast show. And today we've got a quite a varied uh, a breakfast menu for you. Today uh, I'm going to kick off with uh, a, an ostrich told me the world is fake and I think I believe it. It's a short film by Lachlan Pendragon. We're actually going to talk to Lachlan because Lachlan's short film animation has been nominated for uh, the Academy Award for Animated Short Film. And that's pretty exciting for a Queensland uh, doctorate student in uh, Griffith Film School. So, uh, and he's a nice chap. So he's off to LA and we're going to find out a little bit about his uh, film and his filmmaking. We're going to follow that up with uh, the Murray-Dully Basin Plan. You remember in 2018 the massive uh, fish kills that were on the Barker, the uh, Darling, and uh, it brought into focus the uh, outrageous uh, the um, watering of the river and how it was dying, a classic case of how colonisation has led to the dying of rivers. But anyway, the um, I- there was a, a plan, uh, an independent inquiry into what could happen to uh, make uh, revive the river and uh, the Murray-Dullin Basin plan was the result. There was meetings on the 24th of February, Friday, of the water ministers of, from the states and uh, the environment... Uh, Environment uh, Victoria and others from the other states because the rivers go right through the uh, country uh, have uh, called for uh, Minister Plevisek to uh, step in and uh, push for the buying up of uh, uh, water uh, um, uh, water from the uh, irrigators etc to uh, put in the proper water that uh, levels it for to flush through the system. But anyway, I talked to Di- uh, Tyler Rochet from uh, Environment Victoria. He's Healthy Rivers campaigner and uh, he gave me an overview of what's going on there. Uh, we're going to talk to Renunga in Pankuma, who's from the Tamil Refugee Council. There's going to be a rally. It's focusing on the ineligibility for the new resolution of status visa announced by the federal Labor government. Everybody thinks that uh, everything's under control now, that uh, permanent visas are being given out. But uh, the uh, it's not for everyone, and there's about 12,000 who have been excluded, mainly the people who came by boat. Um, and uh, it's focusing also on the fact that... Uh, 
since July 2015 to December 2022, Tamils have a 94% appeal rejection rate, uh, which is just extraordinary, and uh, they're calling for action on this. Uh, and so we're going to talk to Renunga about what's going on there. Uh, this is the week that was. Kevin has, does a sizzling account of the week. And uh, Jerome Small has made a road trip to Maktawi, uh known as Alice Springs. And he's written um, up his account of the experience in Red Flag, but he's going to have a chat with us as well. You're on 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Do you believe in the right to protest? Are you concerned about climate change and the environment? Then come and make your voice heard at a mass meeting on the right to organise for climate and the environment. Join others at 6.30pm on Tuesday, March 7th at 535 Elizabeth Street, Central Melbourne to discuss and then vote on practical ways to support climate action and the environment and to defend the right to protest. Speakers include proud Gunai Kurnai woman Marjorie Thorpe, United Workers Union's Godfrey Mose, and Environment Justice Australia lawyer Natalie Hogan, and will be facilitated by Tuffy Morwitzer, campaigner for the Goongarra Environment Centre. Come participate in some direct democracy for a better world. Your voice matters. RSVP is essential. Go to gecko.org.au forward slash calendar to book your ticket. This event is wheelchair accessible and Auslan interpreted. A 3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and as I said, we're going to go to an ostrich told me the world is fake and I think I believe it. Lachlan Pendragon, I caught up with him. Uh, we're going to have uh, a part of the interview I did. If you want to have the full interview, you can go to the podcast later on. Uh, also, just to tell you that uh, the shorts, not just... Uh, Lachlan's uh, short animation, but uh, all the five animations that are up for a nomination with the Academy Award, plus the uh, five live action um, films, are going to be screened across Australia at four, in 40 locations. But in Victoria, uh, in Melbourne, uh, they're going to be at the, uh, the Nova, the Thornbury, the uh, classic Elstonwick, Lido, Hawthorne, Cameo, Melgrave. Belgrave, sorry, and in uh, the uh, village at uh, Jam Factory, Knox, Rivoli and Southland. And just to uh, words up that uh, Nova today at 1.30pm, there's going to be an event where there's a Q&A with, the, uh, with Lachlan and at 615 pm tonight it's also being they're going the program's going to be played so anyway uh enough of me thanks for talking to me lachlan um nice. uh and congratulations oh my goodness thank you yeah yeah how go- you. great to you um i've i uh, watched all of the films that are in the shorts program and i i really wanted to ask you how did you know that animation was for you how did for you me. ever get to this stage yeah, I um, yeah, I guess I thought 
I was going to go into live action originally. I thought that was where I was heading and I like was always playing with cameras and things like that. Um, I had like done a bit of animation uh, back way back then uh, and enjoyed it, um, but hadn't really given it much more thought than like, oh, okay, here's another way of making films. Um, and so I didn't get into live action filmmaking like when I went to go study it and I had animation as like a, a second preference. And so I went and did, I studied that for a bit, trying to figure out if there was something there that interests me. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I learned a bit of all, all the different types of animation and arrived back at stop motion, um, about a year into my studies. Uh, and that's where it sort of really connected with me. Um, it's kind of this sort of middle ground, I think, between live action and animation. You're kind of still using cameras and lights and you, yeah, you're, it's kind of the same problem solving, I think. Well, because I've done, uh, I tried to do a bit of animation at one stage and I, what I realised about it was that it was the way you think. You have to think in a particular way, which I don't. And that's why I hold, I, I'm so impressed. Um, you probably just do it without realising that it's um, something that not everybody can do. It takes a lot of practice. I think I'm getting to that like I, I, it gets easier and easier like I want it to be as intuitive as possible um, but I definitely think when I started out I'm I'm mostly just thinking about like those basic like animation principles of getting it to look like it's like breathing and living and that kind of stuff um, yeah so because it's a stuff... trick isn't it it's yeah, like exactly. magic it's like yeah, magic it is yeah yeah it it's is, quite yeah. extraordinary so, yeah it just takes that practice to get to the point where it's sort of second nature yeah, yeah. Now, the next thing about it is that um, animation is fantastic because it appears to me that it's a, a, um, a flight of fancy. There's a certain flight of fancy involved in it, right? Uh, in animation? I think so. There's always that, like... Um that question of like why is this animated rather than um live action and so i think that pops up early on is like this is animation we're building everything so uh, you know we may as well make it a bit more fantastical or you know have it set on the moon or something you know like it um you you're open to to yeah to building uh, whatever world uh or story you you can imagine yeah, yeah. So that's what you're doing. You're building worlds. And I looked mm. at your other stuff. Uh, it's not just it's not just building worlds. It's also uh, reflecting on the world that we're in. Yeah, it is. I think. Yeah, there's something really cool about animation where, where because it's so it's like slightly removed, that then you're like paying a lot more attention to those sort of little details of like what makes us human or what how like idiosyncrasy and stuff I feel like I emphasize when you're watching it through an animated puppet um yeah I like that about animation do you did you in this particular uh the one that's been uh um mm-hmm. going to the academy Award, nominated yeah yeah nominated uh, an ostrich told me the world is fake and I think I believe it great title um <laughs> Did you actually think you were the main character? Were you thinking in the main character's view? Um, if I was writing like dialogue and stuff for that character, yes. Um, and if I was animating, I think sometimes, yes. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, 
yeah, when because I would like act out the scenes before um, starting to animate to get a sense of like what this what the shot was going to be and um, to figure out what those like little idiosyncrasies would be because you it's hard to tell sometimes and so when you record yourself then you look at that and you can pick up on little things that you can use in your animation um, and sometimes when you do that a lot it kind of starts to um, like it starts to bake into your muscle memory a bit so you can kind of feel the performance as you're animating it um so in that sense yeah i can re like i i'm yeah i can see that oh no it doesn't feel quite right it would you know as you're animating and you would like move it and adjust it um mm. accordingly and that, that i continue to get better at one of the things that's interesting is that there's a lot of you're looking i mean they're short right the 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 uh short is short but yeah it's incredibly dense in detail. Um, it, it's that that's quite extraordinary. It's like it's like those pictures where you've got a huge crowd and you've got to find one object in it. You know what? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I I was really uh, I I wanted to make sure that I could, I could put as much as I could into that ten minutes. Um, and so yeah, I wanted to make sure that you were entertained the whole way through. Um, and uh and yeah find that balance of of where is too much um uh and yeah I, i'm i'm happy to hear that that yeah that you were uh yeah that you found that there were lots of stuff to be enjoyed uh in the film yeah yeah well and also the other thing that's interesting is of course that you're the writer i mean everything about doing an animation like you said before you're creating a world but you're in control in on every level which Absolutely. is a great thing for you i guess um yeah it's a very magical thing to be doing. But uh, the story is, because it's 10 minutes, it's got to be uh, very swift and it's got to be as clever as a Philip K. Dick short story, in a sense. Um, what's the hook? What's the hook and how do you get there? And the other, and I know this is a sort of a, a long-winded question, but like with um, comedy, you're talking about something actually really big and important in this film, but uh, people could go away just being amused as well. You're allowed to say things that you wouldn't normally allowed to be a say say about the capitalist system that we live in. Yeah, um, and yeah, that was important to me that you could just uh, take it as a piece of entertainment, and that was fine if you wanted to, if just enjoy it as that. Um, uh, but yeah, there are then those underlying things, and I think yeah, when you're talking about um, those kind of themes, it's 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 I think yeah, it's a bit more palatable if you've got that humour there, um, just to help you through it. Um, otherwise, yeah, it can get a bit too bleak, or uh, I I, I uh, yeah, I didn't want it to get too dark. Um, I wanted it to have that humour there, um, and uh, and uh, the first part of your question. Uh, really about what was the hook. I was wondering, is it personal experience? I read one of the reviews that someone said about the film, um, oh, the, about a dead-end job, right? And I'm thinking, because yeah. I do uh, programs about uh, working people and their lives and stuff, mm -hmm. uh, us, um, yeah. uh, dead-end job, oh, well, you know, that's a lots of people's experience. Yeah, I... I didn't work in a call center, but I, I did work as a, um, a spruker for a long time. 
uh, like standing out the front of a chemist or a jeweler with a microphone just announcing the specials over and over. And it has that real repetitiveness and, and yeah, it just gets really dull. Um, and I, yeah, I definitely pour a lot of that into the, the main character. Um, yeah, I'm just sort of feeling stuck and kind of not, uh, knowing where his life's going. Um, and, and yeah, it's, yeah, you, you like in the film, it's, he's like trying to sell a toaster to, you know, over the phone. It's kind of this really soul crushing thing. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And uh, that's uh, Lachlan Pendragon talking about his uh, animation and Ostrich told me the world is fake and I think I believe it. It's one of the five uh, animations that are up for uh, the uh, an Academy Award and there's other five um, live action films as well. Uh, the program of those uh, ten films are being shown at uh, places like the Elstonwick Lido in Hawthorne, Cameo in Belgrave, Thornbury on Saturday and Sunday, Nova and uh, Village Cham Factory, uh, Knox, Rivoli and Southland. But you have to look them up uh, because they're only if there's only a small window of opportunity to see them this weekend and I think some of the dates are next weekend as well. But at the Nova, 1.30pm today, there's a Q&A with Lachlan and 615 PM, you can see the whole crew at Nova as well. Uh, you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. On uh, the podcast, you'll hear the extended interview with uh, Lachlan Pendragon. Brunswick Music Festival presents Sydney Road Street Party, March 5th from 12pm, featuring eight pop-up stages and performances by NAM favourites. Cable Ties, Kira Peru, Black Jesus Experience, Ajak Kwai, Pinch Points, Mindy Menwang, June Jones, Georgia State Line, and heaps more. Plus, great food, markets, community stalls, and parties happening at venues all along Sydney Road. More info at brunswickmusicfestival.com.au. Presented by Mary Beck City Council, a 3CR supporter. You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast here on 3CR and uh, we're moving right along to the serious business of uh, water and the Murray-Darling Basin plan and the promises of uh, the water flows that are required to revive the river. I uh, spoke to uh, the Healthy Rivers campaigner for Environment Victoria, Tyler Roch, about what's going on. And what we began with is uh, talking about the three significant mass fish deaths which tallied uh, from thousands to a million in the Murray-Darling between 2018 and 2019. That was the impetus for uh, the creating the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. Everyone will remember the, the massive thing that happened at Menindee. And it's an acute example of what's happening across the whole river system, which is that too much water is being taken from the river. But what that looks like along the Murray and what it looks like elsewhere is really just the loss of the smaller and medium-sized flows that are essential for sustaining most of the floodplain. 
as well as the sort of connectivity that you need to have between a floodplain and a river that really separates a river that's able to live as a river from a river that's just treated as a channel to deliver water for irrigation. And so the ministers met on Friday last week to discuss the implementation of the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. And at the heart of that is really how can we set aside enough water to bring back some of those small and medium-sized flows to sustain the floodplain and to sustain the whole length of the river system. So uh, we've been told that, um, pointed out by uh, Environment Victoria and the other environmental organisations uh, with skin in this game in the other states that are involved, um, that uh, New South Wales and Victoria in particular are being recalcitrant. And in fact, um, the National Water Minister uh, in New South Wales is actually accused of gaslighting and sidestepping um, these are uh, so that uh, that the Murray Basin plan for increased water flows don't happen in June 2024. It, it, can you tell us why the Victorian and New South Wales uh, water ministers in particular are, are behaving like this? At the start of the Basin plan, really, we can look back to the Water Act in 2007, which acknowledged in law that too much for and we need to take less. And so the question of how much was meant to be a question left to the best available science. In 2010, as they were starting to do the preparation for the basin plan, a figure came out of 7,600 gigaliters was what you needed to have a good chance of the river system survival. And that's not restoring everything to some imagined pristine state that's maintaining the basic ecological functions that are characteristic of the river system. Um, so 7,600 gigaliters was the figure they came up with, and 500-ish gigaliters is about a Sydney harbor. From the start, Victorian oils weren't happy with that amount and made the target a question political expediency rather than best available science. So eventually it got whittled down to closer to 2750, so less than half of what the best available science needed. And South Australia was able to push for a bit more to guarantee the health of the Kurong. Um, really important wetlands internationally that are at the bottom of the river system. Where we're at now is about 2100 gigaliters have been recovered. So we're working up toward the target that's good for keeping the river system alive, but not nearly what we need to guarantee its survival. But Victoria and New South Wales are basically saying that we're about done and that the only projects left that they're really interested in doing are part of an offset scheme, uh, a scheme that was invented to get paper water instead of the real thing that basically offsets the responsibility to return water to rivers. And so that's where we're at now is the federal government saying, let's get on with the job. Let's start returning water to rivers. South Australia is pushing for it. But the Victoria and New South Wales government are basically saying, look, the only thing really we're interested in doing at this point is advancing our offset scheme. So it's, it's really a question of who wants more water for rivers at this point. And 
whether it's going to be paper water or whether it's going to be the real thing. So what does Victoria and New South Wales want the water for? When we talk about setting water aside for rivers, it's a question of right now we know the system's over-allocated. Um, there's a lot of water for consumptive use and for irrigators. And the question is, can we buy some of that water back? So pay irrigators to take a bit less. Most of the time, irrigators usually stay in farming, just sell a bit of their share and use that money to invest in other parts of the business, whether that's paying down debt or whether it's converting to um, more dryland production or really anything that makes the business more resilient in a hotter, drier climate. And so that's what we're seeing right now, really, is this question of should we buy back water or is allowing the over-extraction, over-allocation to go on to the detriment of the river system, an appropriate subsidy, I suppose, for uh, keeping water prices temporarily low, but not even all that significant for irrigators in the short term. When we're talking about irrigators, are we talking about farmers? Are we talking about crop farmers? So it's, it's a range of, of what's being grown. There's dairy, there's stone fruit, there's um, a lot of folks have heard about almonds and cotton in different parts of the basin. And the main argument, I suppose, that's being leveraged against setting enough water aside that the river can survive is this idea that it'll increase water prices. So this notion that if you have a lower supply in the consumptive pool, it'll push prices up. Of course, we know that there's a lot of other drivers of change and a lot of other drivers that are really the things that are making farmers perceive the industry. For the most part, research has found that it's uh, climate change and that it's the, in, the massive impact that climate change is having on water prices. And then there's all the other sort of business factors with consolidation um, driven by larger corporations. What larger corporations? There's a, there's a, a range, I guess, of, of large corporate players when you talk about any commodity. So larger players in cotton, larger players in nuts and permanent horticulture. And so when we, if, if we're thinking about water prices, for example, there's been massive changes just by the large amount of permanent plantings, which need water every year to sustain those trees. And that has a big impact on the demand side of, of water prices. The reason why I bring these issues up is because here is the balance that uh, uh, certain businesses are being prioritised over the actual natural environment that makes it possible for everything to continue. Yeah, I, th I think that we're at a point now where it's clear that regional communities and sustaining a, a good range of diverse jobs but also a diverse range of food and fiber production. Um, so not just large businesses that can pay more for water in a hotter, drier climate, but also, you know, small family farms. We need really intentional policy to think about how we address the full range of challenges that are being faced in agriculture. And I think that starts with accepting that Taking too much water from the river system isn't an option. Uh, it's not an appropriate policy response to address 
that myriad of complex challenges being faced. But at the same time, it's, it's still essential to address them. So out of the meeting last Friday, you were saying that there hasn't been much movement, but uh, environment organisations are calling for the Federal Minister Plibersek to stand up to New South Wales and Victoria by purchasing water as the only cost-effective practical way to return water to the river. That's correct, isn't it? That's right. So there's a few ways to set water aside for the river, buybacks, water purchases, which is just paying farmers for a share of their water rights, is really the most cost-effective and direct option. There have been a few other things tried in the past, like off-farm efficiency projects, which are lining leaky channels to try and save a bit of water that was otherwise uh, evaporating or seeping into the ground. But there aren't too many of those projects left, and they're really poor value for money. And then the last option is on-farm efficiency projects, um, so improvements to water infrastructure on-farm, but those end up being, on average, three to 25 times more expensive than just purchasing the water. And there haven't ever been any studies to really check that there's the same changes in stream flow to guarantee that those savings are being achieved. So the federal government's move to return to water purchases, which is where the bulk of water that's been set aside for the river system has come from, is, is really just a common sense move to get on with the job of the basin plan, it's the best value for money, and it's the most effective way to save water for the river. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, the the rivers themselves are so important and the Australian continent is so dry that uh, it seems unimaginable that you wouldn't make policy with them, the rivers as the main game rather than just the things that hang off the rivers. It's interesting, isn't it? I think the, the Water Act, which the Basin Plan rests upon, is really some impressive legislation that it says it's an environment first act. It says we need to make sure there's enough water for the river to survive and we'll build everything off that basis. It was never meant to be this process where we weigh economic gains against the death of a river system. It was always supposed to be let's set enough water aside for the river and then go from there. So I think the intention behind it is still good, but it's just it's just a shame that really the Victorian government in partnership and lockstep with Barnaby Joyce and the New South Wales Nationals has turned it into a political question. A lot of people think that the Nationals represent the farming community, but really that's they're not representing small uh, farmers. They're, they're actually representing corporate interests. But it's interesting. I think you look at some of the ways that when we talk about the resistance to just straightforward water purchases, the alternative has been these on-farm efficiency projects, which are just really large handouts yeah. for on-farm irrigation infrastructure. And by and large, if you're a small family farm, you're more than 20 times less likely to receive money for one of those projects than a large corporate enterprise. And at the same time, we're seeing big changes about who's in the water market, who's buying water, how they're driving up the price of water and how much they're prepared to pay, that this notion that we can just 
stand back and not get on with the job of the base and plan, it's not going to do much good for con- confronting those real drivers, those real pressures um, that farmers of, of a range of different sizes are facing, which are things like climate change and risk profile and, and commodity prices that are that are really challenging. Well, it's also interesting to me that the river is so long that it goes through all the different uh, states. And, of course, South Australia with the Coorong is at the end of it, uh, of the flow. Um, but I, I, on investigation of this whole issue before, I, I was really struck by the focus of those corporate interests and to the point, the revelation that they were sequestering water, like uh, taking runoff and and they had enough funds to be able to create infrastructure that allowed them to uh, keep the runoff water. Yeah, so this is a practice in the northern basin. Um, so all, all the northern part of the river system above Menindee uh, called floodplain harvesting. You don't see it as much in the south, but in the north you have these big landscapes that are relatively flat, so you just need to build a small levee or raise a road to be able to capture what's a lot of water. And so right now what's happening in New South Wales is there's been this ongoing process and question of how do you license and begin accounting for all of these operations that have set up and taken water in the excess of the cap on water take that was set up in the 90s. And what's essentially happening now is these licenses are being given out with very strange provisions on them that not only permit water take in excess of what was supposed to be a cap set decades ago, but with this provision that they're calling carryover, which is, is unethical in some ways in that it it's allows this debt to be taken from the river system. So we know that the rivers in the northern basin are really variable. You have some years that are really wet, some years that are really dry. And so what's happening is these licenses have a five hundred percent or a three hundred percent carryover provision. So if it's a dry year and you're not able to take all your allocation, it then gets carried into the next year. And so if there's a series of consecutive dry years, it might be that a big flow finally does come, but you've accumulated so much, quote unquote, debt from the river to you that you're able to take an abundance of those flows when they do come, when they should be restoring the plan, when they should be flowing down to Menindee, flowing down down and to the Kurong. Um, so it's it's really dodgy and you know it goes against the whole principle of the basin plan, which is why it's such a uh, a hot issue in New South Wales. Yeah, right, okay. And so uh you you uh, and other organizations, um the Conservation Council of South Australia, uh New South Wales Nature Council Conservation Council and Queensland Conservation Council with the Environment Victoria are raising awareness and what would you like the public to be aware of? You know, what do you want them to do? So for listeners in Victoria, I think it's really important for us to be holding our government to account. I think 
that's been just as bad of an actor and really giving cover to, you know, folks like Barnaby Joyce who get a lot of the blame for the plan. But Victoria's really in lockstep asking for a lot of the same things. Now we're at a point where the federal government's moving. They're saying, let's start this purchasing this water. Let's make sure we reach these really big water targets that have been set for the deadlines coming up in 2024. And so over the next few months and the next year or so, we need to be holding the government to account, making sure that they get on with the job. That includes not postponing the targets for the sake of these dodgy offset projects. We just need to get real water for the rivers. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, and we've just been listening to Tyler Roche. He's the Healthy Rivers campaigner at Environment Victoria. He's talking about the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. It's what needs to be done to save the Barker.
tune in to 3CR's annual International Women's Day broadcast, 24 hours of women and non-binary news, views and music on Wednesday the 8th of March. We want to celebrate the resistance, talent, strengths and power of women and genderqueer living here in the Kulin Nation and of those living, fighting and creating change all over so-called Australia and the world. This International Women's Day celebration is a celebration of feminism that knows that liberation from gender depression can never be achieved without dismantling all systems of domination and subjugation. From midnight Sunday the 7th of March until midnight on Monday the 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of radio by women and non-binary presenters, producers and musicians. For details, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash IWD 2023. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR. And uh, we've got Ranuka Impanukumba on the phone. Uh, Hello, Ranuka. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, and uh, you're from the Tamil Refugee Council and uh, you're calling a rally for Monday outside Parliament House at 12 because of uh, the fears that uh, the Tamil refugees in our society are being overlooked. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, so we're holding this rally with other um, refugee organisations and other refugees will be attending to call out the government for um, the recent announcement and the fact that 12,000 refugees are left in limbo without any pathway to get permanent residency. Yeah, because everybody thinks that uh, the announcement for fast-tracking people on um, uh, temporary uh, refugee visas, uh, protection visas to permanency uh, included everybody. Mm, Yeah, and I think... That's the issue with the announcement is that it has caused a lot of people to fall silent during this time where we need everyone to be loud and clear of what what refugees want. Um, We're seeing still um, people on bridging visas in fear. A lot of um, refugees are going to be deported soon and it's just caused um, a massive shift in the refugee community as well as the activist community. We're seeing not much on the left speak up and I think we really need the left right now to speak up because refugees are victims of this capitalist system um, that's been ingrained in their everyday life. Oh, it's, 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 it gives me shivers. It's a very angu- There's a lot of anguish, no doubt. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Like we're seeing children still, you know, not being able to go to university. You know, they're, they're finishing primary and high school thinking that they're going to fulfill passions in life, but they're not. They have to go pick up, you know, two to three jobs to try and get that fee for an international student. And these kids are not international students. These kids are refugees who have to flee their own homeland due to persecution. We're also seeing a high number of suicide rates, especially in the Tamil community. Um, And this has caused um, severe mental health issues to occur throughout generations in the Tamil community. Um, And we're also seeing how there's been an ignorance from the Australian government of how Sri Lanka is still unsafe for Tamil refugees. Yes, that's right. Uh, The Labor Party's decision to continue the Operation Sovereign Borders framework has meant that um, 
the people who are the refugees that are being are, are unable to be free, uh, fast tracked, um, predominantly those who came on boats, right? Mm-hmm. And that would yeah, be camels, right? Yeah, that's correct. Because even if you look at the Operation Sovereign Borders website right now, there's actually examples of, you know, apparently coming by boat is illegal and the examples are um, based on Tamil refugees fleeing. But if you look at the situation that occurred for Tamil people, especially after 2009, the means of coming to Australia was by boat. Um, because coming by plane, you would have to go to the south of the island. And that is where, um, you know, that's where all those high official war criminals are. And they would, of course, stop the plane. This is desperation. And when times of desperation are in need, um, Tamil refugees had to do whatever they can to try and find freedom. But sadly, when arriving to Australia, they were kept in in detention indefinitely. Um, And now, you know, I've got few people who've left um, Sri Lanka at the age of 15 and they're now at the age of 26 with still a bridging visa and in court. Um, So you can just see the desperation that refugees have at the moment with this recent announcement. And we're we're talking about people who have witnessed um, the deaths of their families and people who have been... um, uh, tortured and things of this nature, and you're pointing out that uh, uh, during July 2015 to December 2022, Tamils have a 94% appeals rejection rate, the, yeah. uh, the highest amount of appeals to the IAA out of any cohort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's correct. Um, you know, these people that have fled they weren't just witnesses of torture and witnesses of death happening in their family, but the Tamil people were witnesses of genocide and ongoing genocide that they have faced since 1948. So they've witnessed atrocities occur based on just being Tamil. Um, and this is not being heard by the Australian government or the IAA. Um, and it's a massive concern because... The DFAT country report states that Sri Lanka is safe. Um, but why are these Tamils in fear? Because they know that if they are being sent back to Sri Lanka, especially attending rallies, especially speaking up against the Sri Lankan government, they will be persecuted. You know, we've got people who have posted on TikTok um, for attending rallies and it's been taken down from TikTok and now the Sri Lankan government actually has those names and questioning the families in Sri Lanka of why this person is posting about the genocide. So we have people being surveillanced even in Australia from Sri Lankan authorities. So the IAA still considers Sri Lanka to be safe when clearly there's statistics, there's reports um, stating and continuously stating that genocide is occurring in Sri Lanka and in um, our own homeland, the northern and eastern districts being Tamililam. So what are you asking for? There's quite specific things that, he, uh, that the Tamil Refugee Council is calling for, right? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're basically saying that resolution of status visa needs to be given to all refugees. Um, and we need to retest all denied uh, Tamil asylum claims because there is new information that needs to be considered um, and we need to disqualify DFAT's report. Um, that is not a credit report. Um, it needs to be taken down. It needs to be rewritten um, 
based on the fact that Sri Lanka is unsafe. And we need to end the long discrimination that we've been facing on boat arrivals. Um, and we need to also get an acknowledgement of the ongoing genocide and that Australia needs to stop having bilateral relations with a genocidal state. Yes, touche. Um, so tell the listeners when the rally's on. So the rally is on Monday at 12.30pm um, in front of Canberra, um, in front of the Parliament House in Canberra. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really urge every single person who's able to come to attend to stand alongside the Tamil refugees and other refugees, to stand as alongside refugees who have been in fear and to ensure that our voices are amplified. Because at the end of the day, it's actually citizens who have a stronger voice and can urge the government to actually listen to refugees. We saw that with the Biloela family. It was citizens who actually created the change with the help of refugees. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Renuka. Thank you so much for having me. That was Renuka in Pakuma from the Tamil Refugee Council about the issue of um, fast track permanent uh, to permanent uh, status uh, only uh, affects positively some of those people who have been in limbo. There's about 12,000 refugees, particularly uh, Tamils, who are in fear of being deported. You're on 3CR, Solidarity Breakfast. A week solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when spare a thought for the filthiest rich of the filthy rich, saving every penny, every penny of the several hundred million they scrape together for their retirement, allowing them to enjoy a very, very early retirement. Early, early retirement from paying taxes. Not that we're suggesting having all those millions in a super account is a tax dodge, because they assure us they meet all their legal tax obligations. And the frustrating thing about a socialist government, as Lord Rupert of Wapping and the caring business class and the caring business class coalition parties chorus, bent on class warfare where there is no class in our classless society other than in the minds of evil unions and long-haired commie greenies, is these very important filthiest rich of will have to spend even more on their tax lawyers and accountants to ensure they can overcome this latest attack on their wealth and continue to meet their legal tax obligations. And what those who can't avoid paying their legal tax obligations extracted from their wages don't realise is that big end-of-town tax lawyers and tax accountants don't come cheap. It costs to reduce your legal tax obligations to zero. Well, zero plus, because it's important that you pick up more than a little of corporate welfare from the taxes those who can't avoid, can't avoid. And the Lord Rupert Media, in its daily oh-so-sincere concern for those struggling as the cost of living soars, tells those struggling they must be concerned at this attack on super savings. Super-duper obscene savings. Our homes will be next, after all, leaving us to ponder if these people have up to 400 mil in their super account, how much must they have altogether? A, A thought which explains why we must spare a thought for the poor dears. 
who, after all, have only two and a half years to prepare for this attack on their little retirement nest eggs. Oh, and another little thought. Those don't come cheap, big end-of-town tax lawyers and accountants who advise the filthy rich on how not to pay tax. Wonder how much tax they pay. One thing is certain. They all meet their legal tax obligations. But problems for the filthy rich don't end there. They have to counter a thoroughly nonsensical argument that their price increases and not wages are the cause of those inflationary costs of living blowouts. Expressed for them by a true blue Aussie Capitalist Review editorial headline, Excess Profits Not to Blame for Inflation Outbreak. Excess Profits in parenthesis, because the capitalist review on behalf of the filthiest rich of knows profits are not excessive, and says that, while caring employers point out wages are the real cause of inflation, showing that slow wage growth is inflationary. Although the capitalist review editorial concedes that wages are not causing inflation, so if neither wages nor excess profits, which are not excessive, are causing inflation, then uh, uh, what is? All this countering a long-haired commie greenie report from the True Blue Aussie Institute Centre for Future Work, claiming inflation could still be about 2% if the caring business class had not increased prices by $160 billion a year above costs. Leading economics professor Richard Holden, the profits, to sma smash that assumption with, the report plays into a sense of confusion about the drivers of rapidly rising prices. While the clearly confused institute report was based on nothing more reliable than the facts. Holding the Profits has been a busy little professorial body, separately producing an article explaining that slow wages growth has absolutely nothing to do with the capitalist system. As if some misguided people might think there was a, some sort of connection, or with an intentional policy by the previous coalition caring business class government pointing out that when then economic guru Matthias Rotten Tuther describes suppressing wages as a deliberate design feature, he did not mean suppressing wages was a deliberate design feature. Richard didn't tell us what Matthias did mean, but real wages grew slowly in most advanced economies during the 2010s, and the average real wage for Americans did not increase for the four decades up to 2020. Slowing growth in wages is an international phenomenon. So, unless there's some coordinated international neoliberal conspiracy to screw over workers... We must look elsewhere for the diagnosis and solution to slow wages growth. G given Richard is an intelligent economics professor who, unlike us, well, certainly me, I, I won't uh, blame you, listener, I won't speak for you, understands the intricacies of the greatest little economic order of them all, heaven forbid that some economic ignoramuses might think there just might be some coordinated international neoliberal conspiracy to screw over workers. Or as those caring business class practitioners who argue wages are the cause of inflation point out, given wages are causing our soaring inflation, imagine how bad inflation would be 
if wages were actually increasing. Uh, Richard's solution, given neoliberal capitalism is totally innocent and would never dream of screwing over workers, productivity. Workers must work harder. My word, there's an original thought. Original thoughts from Woodside with Profit Supremo Peg O'Neill before dollar signs as she announced a record $6.5 billion record profit, like investing more and more across the globe in fossils, declaring there is no need for True Blue Aussie to adopt Europe's stronger anti-fossil regulations and asserting a super-duper obscene windfall profits tax on fossils like Woodside with would be a disincentive to invest in more and more fossils and therefore hurt all True Blue Aussies. Although a bit more detail on that one wouldn't have hurt. She probably took for granted we'd know she meant all True Blue Aussies like her and the other fossils. She did say she believed shareholders supported Woodside with climate policy, uh, which is... Profit. We support a climate of record profit, 100%. Uh, but, but Peg, what about climate change, if there is such a thing? We do not expect the climate of profit to change, so I can assure you, you have nothing to worry about. As an aside, like all the big fossils causing the problem, Woodside with assures us it supports net zero emissions by 2050, but... Hell, fossils are fetching record prices and there's plenty of time to do something about that, like buy a tree in a rainforest somewhere until the logging industry turns up to enjoy its record profits. And anyway, net zero emissions does not mean zero emissions. Zero emissions would hurt all of us, all true blue Aussies. Pig expressed her concern for all of us. Iconoclastically, Greenpeace recently... Um, produced a, ran a full-page ad, Woodside with wants True Blue Aussie businesses to foot its pollution bill. Don't let Woodside with write True Blue Aussie's climate policy. As if. What disrespect for a great True Blue Aussie icon doing its bit for all of us. And another Supremo showing the value of women behaving like men, A.G. Hell for the Planet Supremo Patricia McConnemsey, said the path to net zero must be realistic. Uh, realistic, Patricia, what would be realistic? We asked the head of True Blue Aussie's biggest coal-fired polluter. Let me say it would be unrealistic if we had to shut down our coal-fired generators. Patricia said AG Hell 4 was united in our vision for the clean energy future for True Blue Aussie. Um, what, as long as you don't have to stop polluting? Exactly. A former senior public servant, now a senior academic, told the robo-debt Her Most Graduacy's Commission uh, this week, then Minister Stupid Robots, dismissed her recommendation the scheme should be scrapped based on the Solicitor General's advice it was illegal. That's just an opinion. Stupid lived up to his name. Two days after her evidence, Stupid told the inquiry he couldn't quite recall that conversation. It's contagious, isn't it, the way these people have memory lapses the moment they hit the witness box, blaming the public service for keeping him ignorant, as if they're to blame. Very unfair, that. And despite contemporary interviews lauding the scheme, he said he had doubts about it, but at the time couldn't express his personal thoughts. 
the significance of that, of course, that he considers he is capable of thought. Although, if he is, that could be the problem, as this episode is just one more highlight in Stupid's illustrious ministerial career. Given Stupid kept turning up as a minister for being a minister, it does leave us to ponder the bottomless depths of incompetence of those who didn't make it. Stupid didn't just dismiss the public servant's warning about the illegality. He then dismissed her altogether for telling him what he didn't want to hear, and which he told the Her Most Gracious Majesty's commission he didn't hear. In a U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World defamation case against, surprise, surprise, Lord Rupert of Wapping's faux news, Lord Rupert admitted Foe had strongly argued that former U.S. of Supremo Donald Trump of the poor had won the election and been robbed, interviewing balanced observers like Donald's lawyers such as Rudy Giuliani, and had perpetrated other conspiracy theories and now says in hindsight he wishes he had prevented it. Uh, when did this wish strike you, Lord Rupert? Uh, when, the, uh, when the defamation suit arrived... But the episode shows Lord Rupert does not intervene with his team of balanced, for want of a better word, balanced journalists. I don't have to. They know exactly what I want them to say, or else. As speculation continues on whether former Sydney Theatre Company artistic director Kate Blanchett will win another Oscar, the company has appointed its new chairperson. The airline, which used to be our airline supremo, Alan Joystick. As a result, roles will be contracted out as a cost-cutting measure, although some of the contracted employees may have had some acting experience. And audiences will discover at the end of every performance, the theatre has lost their handbags, wallets, coats and other possessions. Oh, and performances will be cancelled or run excessively late due to circumstances outside Alan's control. Finally... Like the big fossil polluters insisting they must continue to pollute for the good of all of us, as evil unions call for an immediate end to cut stone silicosis, killing and injuring workers, with Zion-based Caesar stoned to death featuring the, co featuring the company fought back with a full-page ad, a safe and sustainable stone industry, informing us a ban will not solve the issue of silicosis, and it's devoted to a safe and sustainable industry. Installed bedstops are entirely safe, it states. Nothing like truth in advertising. Sure, sure it's safe. After the workers have caught silicosis, making it safe. Let's prove its argument. Let the Caesar stone to death boardroom spend 12 months cutting the stone themselves, do the actual work themselves. We're sure they'd love to. After all, it's safe and sustainable. Good morning. Do you believe in the right to protest? Are you concerned about climate change and the environment? Then come and make your voice heard at a mass meeting on the right to organise for climate and the environment. Join others at 6.30pm on Tuesday, March 7th at 535 Elizabeth Street, Central Melbourne to discuss and then vote on practical ways to support climate action and the environment and to defend the right to protest. Speakers include proud Gunai Kurnai woman Marjorie Thorpe, 
United Workers Union's Godfrey Mose and Environment Justice Australia lawyer Natalie Hogan and will be facilitated by Tuffy Morwitzer, campaigner for the Goongarra Environment Centre. Come participate in some direct democracy for a better world. Your voice matters. RSVP is essential. Go to gecko.org.au forward slash calendar to book your ticket. This event is wheelchair accessible and Auslan interpreted. A 3CR supporter. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast here on 3CR. And we've got Jerem Small. Jerem, g'day. How are you? Yeah, good, Annie. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, it's great to hear from you because uh, you've written an article for Red Flag uh, about <clears throat> your journey up to, um, <clears throat> I'll say it correctly, hopefully, uh, Mumtuwi? How do you say it? Mbatwa. Uh, Mbatwa. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's what the local Aranda people, uh, that's the name of the place where Alice Springs is. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's pretty widely used. Uh, yeah, Mbatwa. Yeah. Is that how you say it? Say it again. Mbatwa. Mbatwa. I'm pretty sure. Something yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. It was completely different from the way I saw it as it was spelled. And that just goes to show how much uh, work needs to be done to uh, understand the uh, languages uh, from this continent. But tell us about your journey up there. Yeah, well, look, uh, I was only in Alice Springs for a week. So really, um, you know, in that sort of time, you know, I'm chasing around people um, because of the whole national political storm which has been happening around Alice Springs um, and, you know, just trying to get a read on what Aboriginal people are saying about that um, and responses to it. So really, I mean, people can read the article where I quote pretty extensively from a series of the uh, Aboriginal and especially Aranta, um, the local uh, people who are the traditional owners of Alice Springs, of Mbatwa, um, what they had to say about it. I suppose in brief, um, every day and every hour I spent in that place, uh, I became more and more convinced that what we were seeing on uh, screens, on TV screens and you know social media and whatnot uh, from the centre of Australia over the last month or so is just a glimmer of a, a massive economic and social crisis which uh, has gripped... Uh, many Aboriginal communities in Central Australia, both uh, in Alice Springs, in Mbatwa, on the sort of outskirts in the town camps, and probably more profoundly in the remote communities, which you know might be 100 or 200 or 300 uh, kilometres from Alice Springs. And that social crisis isn't just something that happened to happen. It didn't just you know fall from the sky mysteriously. This is a crisis which has been brewing for many years. Um, and uh, what Aboriginal people repeatedly told me was, you want the, the immediate cause of, of all of this? You know, what's happening in, in our Springs today? Look at the intervention. Look at the Northern Territory intervention that was launched by the uh, coalition government back in 2007 and then strengthened and deepened and extended by the incoming Labor government when it came in in 2000 and, uh, at the end of 2007 and then presided over... Uh, by the Liberal government more recently. And there's actually like a lot of elements of that um, intervention which still continue. One of the central elements of the intervention was 
really demolishing the economic foundation of a lot of remote Aboriginal communities um, by destroying the community development employment program. Um, and there's, you know, like I grew up in, <laughs> became politically active in the 80s where there was a left-wing critique of the CDEP saying, you know, um, it shouldn't be, um, you know, that these a lot of the work that was done under the CDEP was essential work for those communities. It should be uh, paid not just the basic award wage, it should be paid higher wages, uh, there should be superannuation, there should be, um, you know, uh, full-time employment for those who wanted it. So you can make those criticisms of the CDEP, but it wasn't those criticisms that motivated the Howard government and then the Rudd government's demolition of the CDEP. It was instead um, like ripping a huge amount of money out of Aboriginal communities and putting people who had been on the CDEP, um, you know, on a, a much lower uh, income, which was basically the dole. So you, you ripped billions of dollars. The government quite consciously ripped billions of dollars out of some of the poorest uh, communities in the country and then proceeded to, at the same time, demolished local uh, sort of governance structures. A lot of these remote communities had uh, community government um, uh, committees or councils, um, which, you know, decided, OK, this is the work we need done. This is how we're going to allocate the CDP money. Uh, you know, here's local issues in the town that need to be discussed. All of that was either destroyed or bypassed by Northern Territory and um, federal governments over many years. That hasn't come back. The CDEP hasn't come back. Um, and the result of that and, you know, the many other changes, uh, policy changes in the intervention, uh, you know, weakening Aboriginal title to land, attacking the idea of perpetual... Uh, Aboriginal title in, in various ways, making it easier for uh, mining companies and other developers to sort of step in and to um, push through uh, development proposals. The result of all of that um, has been, and still is, a very profound crisis indeed. Um, so, you know... The, yeah, well, well, anyway. well, the, well, the thing is, uh, I like to point out to people uh, something in particular uh, that uh, they can relate to in the Victorian context. Uh, one of my sisters has always worked in social welfare and um, she pointed out that after the Kennett uh, demolishing of the social services system in Victoria, it all came out in the wash 20 years later. And this is exactly what's going on. The intent, it worked the, this, it, what he did worked the way he wanted it to. And what happened with the intervention worked the way the capitalist system wanted it to. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and many of them, people can read the interview, for instance, with, um, in my article with uh, Q Nakamara Ke uh, Kenny, who's an uh, Aboriginal woman, grew up in Hermansburg or Ontario, um, you know, 100 or so kilometres out of Alice Springs. And she says, look, the intervention worked. <laughs> it was a definite plan um, and, and it worked, like to plunge Aboriginal communities into crisis. and yeah, into chaos. Uh, you know, yeah, that's right. And there's no shortage of Aboriginal people who have been saying over that entire time, um, that is what you are doing. And now... You know, there's all this shock horror at the actual results of that, which, um, you know, I mean, th there's a lot of, like a lot of the media coverage is is definitely, has definitely been sensationalised. I've seen things on the TV where, 
you know, we're meant to be spooked by nothing more than a group of young Aboriginal people walking through the town. It's like, oh, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> like, there's, a, there's a bunch of sort of hype around it. But underneath that, um, according to the Northern Territory Police, like at one stage when I was up there, they were saying, look, we think it's a core group of about 60 or 80 young people who, um, you know, are engaging in damaging behaviours, um, and are entering a cycle of criminalisation. Um, and no one I talked to up there was sort of, you know, in denial about um, the things that were happening in the town. Um, it was just it, everyone was scathing at the idea that it can be simplified to, oh, well, you know, it was just the uh, the lifting of um, the, you know, some of the alcohol restrictions in June of last year. They say, OK, that might have accelerated the crisis or... Um, sharpened it or made it more visible, but the roots of the crisis are, are much deeper. Well, you know, the thing about... Uh, I, I find the uh, grog thing, you know, the banning of alcohol, a really fascinating white obsession uh, yeah. because uh, if you look at the statistics, fewer Aboriginal people drink than in in percentage terms than the white population, right? Now... Uh, that that's just actually a fact. Um, I don't know what it's like in Central Australia, but the point the point is that it's really there to emphasise an ongoing mantra that white colonialist society loves to hold dear, like a, a dolly going to bed, right? Yeah, and look, Kumli Riley, who was one of the uh, people I talked to, was really scathing about this whole narrative of alcohol fuel violence. And she just, like, you know, reading the the quote that she gave me, alcohol is not the problem, it's the system that fails us. Educate us and empower us and give us self-determination. It's like being in a pressure cooker. And, you know, she goes on to say the alcohol plays a a role in that pressure coming out and bang, it's like a volcano and the wider community don't know how to control it and that they fail to include Aboriginal people in... um, you know, how to deal with, uh, you know, any of the problems, but just to to make alcohol the start and the finish of um, the problems is is incredibly misleading, and I'd agree with you, uh, actually racist as well. Yeah, I think it is. into a whole... Um, well, know, because pretty... on my investigation, actually, it's not the preferred drug. And um, when you talk about 60 to 80 young people marauding, uh, from uh, having chatted to the uh, person who runs Karma up there, uh, they're, they're being indiscriminate about who they, um, uh, 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 you know, you know, enter, you know, break and enter into. Like it, it's got, no, it's not white, it's not black, it's uh, th- it's dispossession. We're talking here. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, like one of the, I guess maybe the flip side of that, like there's. No shortage of Aboriginal people who know exactly what the problems are and who have been who, who have been and are working their guts out to address those problems. Yeah. Uh, like one of the examples I have um, highlighted in the article is a, a, an organisation called Children's Ground, and they're um, well, as the name implies, they're the early childhood education organisation, but they have a whole bunch of community development that happens around there. So. It's like, okay, let's establish a, a culturally appropriate um, childcare program where, um, you know, kids are taken out on the country, they have mm. one nutritious meal a day, you know, every single day, 
Um, so the family, they have, um, you know, they're taken out on country, have a whole uh, education about what different things are called. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, it, it's that sort of program which then you create a community around. Let's call a community meeting here. How is this program going? You know, how could it be strengthened? What are the challenges it faces? How can we address that as a community? Um, and that approach is stunningly effective. Like I, I have the example in my article of a, a young, which they document, you know, it's very well documented, um, a, a young girl who's largely non-verbal who as soon as she gets out on country and there's a whole discussion about bird life and so on, all of a sudden there's something that she actually wants to talk about and <laughs> is doing it in her own language. Mm. The um, And the figures that they've got um, with over three years, the families that they work with, the engagement with formal education went up from uh, 12% um, of those of, of those families engaged with formal education to something like 82%. So, you know, for, for 40 years, longer, in fact, Aboriginal people in Central Australia and elsewhere have been saying, look, we want to be able to walk in both worlds, you know. Um, it's quite possible to do that. The only problem with that is that... Uh, in my opinion, and, you know, shared by many people in Central Australia, healthy, happy, strong communities with a strong tie to country, this is the last thing that any government wants, in my opinion, uh, in Australia, despite their um, what they say, because that has proved to be an obstacle for mining development, for gas development. 85% of the land mass of the Northern Territory right now is covered by applications for exploration projects for gas. There is a, I mean, Beedaloo is the most advanced. There, there is a massive program um, of mining expansion behind that. That's not the only agenda with the intervention, but certainly, um, you know, the attempted demolition and weakening of so many communities has, has certainly assisted uh, that agenda, you know, uh, communities which are living in poverty have fewer options just economically to say no than uh, communities which are uh, strong, happy, healthy, um, uh, you know, economically strong as well and have a strong connection to their country. Well, you're kinder than I am because I established in my um, litany of thought that uh, all Aboriginal uh legislation in Australia is actually about mining. <laughs> the, yeah, like, I mean, I think there are a few other uh, agendas. Like, it, it's offensive to the neoliberal uh, sort of political establishment. The idea that you should just have um, a right, you know, that you shouldn't have to be able... You shouldn't have to spend money to uh, access essential services. Like, yeah, to, that's to, right, the, that's the, right. The whole idea of, of Aboriginal... Uh, Aboriginal land under the Northern Territory Land Rights Act is that this land should be for the collective uh, benefit and enjoyment um, and use of Aboriginal people forever. Yeah. Um, and so that takes it out of the market, you know. Um, the fact that communities can't be swindled out of it or some entrepreneurial board can't leverage, you know, that land and lose it. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, like... Because this, one, this of the thing, one of the things that they did... The yeah, yeah, one yeah. of the things they did was actually cut water and electricity because it wasn't economic in South the, Australia. Yeah, and the, like I'd heard of this, and a lot of people listening to the show would have been involved in the the enormous protests that happened in 2015 in Melbourne and, and pretty much every other city around Australia when Tony Abbott, the then Prime Minister, said, "Look, 
we well, he, he uh, described Aboriginal connection to country as a, a quote unquote lifestyle choice, and said that oh well you know we can't afford to, to fund that anymore, um, and there were huge protests in response to this racist remark. Um, the what I didn't realise until I got to Alice Springs was that. The, the precedent for that, the immediate precedent for that was in 2014, the year before, when one of the uh, town camps around Alice Springs uh, had its water cut off by Bess Price, the um, political player in Alice Springs and in Central Australia, and the mother of Jacinta Price, the country Liberal Party senator from the Northern Territory. Um, and to, like, it, it's, it, there's, uh, like, a uh, you know, people can follow the links in the article on Red Flag that I wrote. Um, and, you know, there's pictures there of the conditions that Aboriginal people are living in, literally just like, you know, three, three and a half kilometres from the well-watered green lawns of Central Alice Springs and the shopping malls and air conditioning and all of that. You have Aboriginal people, including senior traditional owners, of Mbatwa, of the land on which Alice Springs is built, living in unlined tin shacks in Australia in 2023. And, oh, it's such a mystery why why things aren't all sweetness and light in the, street, in the streets of Alice Springs. It's just, it should be a national disgrace. Uh, I, and also, um, just on the very sheer practicalities of that, as you were saying, that uh, the first building on the southern outskirts of the town is the prison... And that Bill Yarn, the former CEO of the prison, is now one of the local members of the NT government. Yeah. It, but, uh, parliament, like, sorry. Yeah, which tells you something about the strength of law and order politics in uh, in that part of the world. Bill Yarn was, um, look, looking at the election figures, it was a pretty narrow uh, win that he got. It wasn't this decisive thumping win, but... The fact that um, a, a law and order agenda can have a lot of appeal, both to white residents of Alice Springs and also it has to, like looking at the figures, like there were remote communities um, which are, you know, um, which voted pretty solidly for him as well, which, anyway, there'd be a whole story about that. But, yeah, yeah, it's um, about they like want the, peace. Yeah, and well, uh, yeah, like the, the fact that these communities, many of these communities have been plunged into crisis for years under Labor governments as well as Liberal, um, you know. Well, 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 well as Jerome, it's, it, it's this uh, English idea that if you uh, beat people into submission, then you'll get a positive outcome, when in actual fact, as you've pointed out, this isn't the way. There are lots of evidence of, of how you can have happy um, you know, strong community, uh, they just don't want a strong and happy community amongst our First Nations people in Central Australia. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, look, the, the, I mean, further on that, like, I think every non-Aboriginal person, um, you know, has to realise that we have an interest in this as well. Like, we live in a society where, you know, we're told, oh, well, we can't, you know, that these remote communities are unsustainable and should be stripped of, you know, what limited economic assistance that they have. We're, this is the same 
political establishment that celebrates, you know, a $200 billion nuclear submarine deal. Oh, that's meant to be sustainable. $9 billion per year shoveled to fossil fuel companies in subsidies by Liberal and Labor governments. We're told that that's sustainable. But Aboriginal people living on their land, um, no, that's not sustainable. Uh, Decent wages, also not sustainable. A healthcare system that's not in crisis. Oh, sorry, that's just not sustainable. Self-determination. Unless you're a billionaire, um, I think you have, uh, you know, a a pretty decent interest in standing with Aboriginal people when they say, well, the only thing that's not sustainable is the system that's been imposed on Aboriginal people and on the rest of us as well, quite frankly. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Jerem. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity. And, yeah, check out the article on Red Flag. Um, follow the links. Um, there's plenty more information there. Um, yeah, and thanks, thanks for the opportunity, Annie. And talk soon, I hope. Yeah. And that's the end of the program, actually, today. Uh, terrible stuff, terrible stuff. Uh, you know, the intervention built on a lie and uh, going strong. Uh, at the beginning of the program, we talked to Lachlan Pendragon, whose uh, film An Ostrich Told Me the World is Fake, and I think, I believe it, has been um, is one of the contenders for an Oscar this year for uh, animation. Uh, Tyler Roche from the uh, Environment Victoria Healthy Rivers campaigner gave us an insight into what's going on with the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and uh, what needs to be done to save the Barker. Uh, Renuka in Pankumba from the Tamil Refugee Council rally, uh, council sorry, who called a rally in Canberra on uh, Parliament's steps on, uh, well, on the grass outside Parliament in Canberra at twelve um, around the uh, misrepresentation of the uh, fast tracking of uh, uh, it. Um, temporary visa holders because there's 12,000 who are being left behind and uh, this is the week that was and Jerem Small uh, gave us a bit of a an update on Impatwa's situation in Alice Springs. I hope I said that. I think hopefully I'm getting better at these pronunciations. Uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific uh, Currents and we're going to go out with this rollicking song. There's a big storm coming Of this I've no doubt That storm's gonna blow Your little world inside out When the wild winds let up When the violence wanes You'll think of me then When you're watching it rain It ain't wind It's rain
lonesome still Ain't nothing you've done Ever changed how I feel When a storm clouds are building When the deluge takes aim I know it's coming I know the rain I see what's coming listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.